Gary, do you ever remember your dreams? I don't know. I never thought about it. They really went for the commercial tonight, don't you think? Everyone thought you were great. Oh, you're gonna um, pick up the radio for the car for me tomorrow, aren't you? Sure. Oh, don't forget. Tell the guy you're my wife because we put a sauna in the owner's apartment and he's giving us a really great price. Night, hun. Hey, don't eat all that cake. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 42 this time, which is Erica's choice, so let's find out what she has in store for us. Gary... I chose Desperately Seeking Susan from 1985. Directed by Susan Seidelman, produced by Sarah Pillsbury and Midge Sanford, written by Leora Barish, and starring Rosanna Arquette, Madonna, Aidan Quinn, Robert Joy, Will Patton, and virtually 4,000 other notable faces that we'll try to mention as we come upon them. And I specifically mentioned producing and writing credits, which we don't always because... The entire film, top to bottom, is headlined by women. Desperately Seeking Susan is the story of a suburban housewife who intertwines her life with the drifter named Susan through a fascination with the personals column. Now, before we get into the discussion proper... Do you mean into the groove? (laughs) Yes, I do. Excuse me. Um, I want to say that I have a cold or allergies... Or a little old man in an overcoat inhabiting my body or something. But my voice isn't quite there and sometimes I'm extremely nasally until the mucus falls out of my face. So, I'll say that. Now, again before we get into the discussion proper. I think that this might be a little bit of a polarizing episode. Polarizing may be too much of an extreme word here. But this was the first time that you had watched the film. Right. I saw it in the theater when it came out and have seen it several times since then. It's long been a favorite of mine, and I'm thinking that you didn't receive it as warmly as I did. Well, here's the deal. I am not now, nor have I ever been the target demographic for the movie. It's not made for me, which is fine. It was made for a nine, ten-year-old girl, That's which is what I was. That's what it feels like. There's a whole lot in this aspect of turning pop stars into movie stars and what age it is they're exactly shooting for that I both completely understand and kind of fuel some of the contradictions for me within the movie. We will also at some point get into your extreme white light hatred of Aiden Quinn. <laughs> Son of right? Oh, we I sure I don't get are. it. I don't know. We sure are. Gonna I'm going to find that. out. Yeah, to me, where I am now and where I was even then probably, the art that I appreciate, Madonna has always been most notable to me because she's Joe Henry's sister-in-law. Which she wasn't at the time. So that's a newer development, relatively. Right. In my world, that's how I think of her most often because she just never really captivated me. Much like, I guess, Michael Jackson never did. There's a whole strata of pop celebrity that just does not apply to what I'm interested in. And you named two people that captured me from the first moment that I saw them Mm -hmm. and continue to inhabit my life. 
I want to throw in here, again thinking about the time in which I saw it, putting in a little bit of context with the people who were involved in the film. At the time that the movie was made and came out, Susan Seidelman was only 33, the director of the film. Madonna was 27. Rosanna Arquette was 26. Laurie Metcalf was 30. Interesting that you mention that because I was just thinking about relative youth and how sometimes when a specific ensemble comes together, regardless of that, they make something that's either powerful or really stands the test of time. Green Room is the example I was thinking of specifically yesterday because I was writing a piece about Anton Yeltsin and the median age of that cast was similar to this, 25, 26 maybe at the time. And Jeremy Saulnier, the director, not much older decidedly different vibes to the film but sometimes only the urgency of youth can capture a specific feeling that way that makes me think about the world that this movie inhabits and also i think creates to a certain extent it's representing the downtown scene in 1985 early mid 80s if we think about what that was, because I certainly wasn't there, so I'm developing that sense of what New York was from movies like this. Woody Allen being another person that helped shape that okay. view that I had. So in this particular downtown scene, we're talking about Lower Manhattan, which includes Greenwich Village, Soho, Chelsea, the Bowery, and we have this huge arts, culture, music scene that's very famous. If there was any way that I was going to stumble into this movie when it was released, this was the way I was going to get in. Music was much more significant in informing my ideas about what these places were like when I was a similar age to you when you first saw this. For example, we've got CBGB and Max's Kansas City, arguably two of the most famous clubs mm. around, including Danceteria, one of the places that Madonna got her start, and we'll see it in the film as well. <laughs> It's funny how, and I definitely did this, and I know millions of music lovers before me probably romanticize these places a lot. Whether you are coming from the dance music end of the spectrum or the punk rock end of the spectrum, when you shine a light on them in the daytime, these legendary places are all just shitty music venues. And uh, speaking of shitty, it was the time of extreme drug use in these parts of town as well. And I read all kinds of interesting recollections of the period where people were saying i don't really look back on this with uh one of those sepia tone glows <laughs> because there are dead junkies laying around sure. there are needles everywhere there are rats everywhere this was part of my idea that at the time that new york was a scary place it was dangerous it was extremely dirty crime was at an all-time high and as i mentioned again drug use at an all-time high as well I think back to about a decade before that, Death Wish being another one of those that I thought, whoa, you could get killed in New York. And at this period, we're finding a lot of these up-and-coming artists able to live in these places because uh, sometimes they were there illegally. Those were not buildings that were legally able to be inhabited, so there were lots of squatters. You might not have access to electricity. I looked at some senses of what rents were at the time and they were much much cheaper but uh, again you might have a dead junkie on your doorstep at any given moment but at the same time it does really seem like a golden period we have some of the best art around and available 
Jean-Michel Basquiat at that point was not yet dead. He would die three years later. So it seems like it would be an amazing time to be alive and be an artist. I found a great website that I'll link to in the post, and it included some ads from clubs of that year, and here's what your lineup might have included. The Feelies, Mm -hmm. they might be giants. Marshall Crenshaw, which we'll remark upon later on in a scene in the film as well. Circle Jerks. Or on the next night, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band. So, these, you know, we'll these down. Jersey clubs? <laughs> no, this is downtown. Okay. Yeah, that's a common cycle in every artistic community. Only the artists are willing to live in those conditions, often sharing space multiple people at a time, because it's the only way they can afford to do their work and not have to get a day job in some cases, and actually devote all their time to creativity. Then, they're afforded some measure of success, people want to be where the art is, they move in, rent goes up, and the artists who drew the people there in the first place can no longer afford to stay there. It's happened over and over and over again. It's happening right now on the east side of Austin. And at this moment that the film was made, a lot of the people appearing in it, a lot of the connections made were from this downtown scene. People living and working next to each other, getting to know each other, supporting each other. So how about... We get into the movie. Right, because the movie doesn't start there. The movie starts across the river in a beauty shop in New Jersey. And it starts with music. Music is very, very important in this film. We've got that pop song, the Shoop Shoop song. Mm -hmm. It's in his kiss. This is a pink pastel paradise. For me, even though I am from the suburbs, I had never seen anything this fancy. I had never seen anyone having their legs waxed. I hadn't ever seen anyone having their nails done outside of movies. This is where we first meet Roberta, played by Rosanna Arquette, and Laurie Metcalf, who is her sister-in-law, Leslie. Roberta is reading from the personals from the very start, that sort of missed connection section that she's really fascinated by. And we learn a few things here, that she doesn't have a job, astoundingly to me, Leslie tells her not to accept anything under $50,000. In 1985, were they <laughs> Wall Street attorneys? I don't, I don't get it. What could they possibly have been doing? But anyway. I don't make that much now. <laughs> no kidding. Neither of us do. We also learn that Roberta is, I think, prone to being shaped by other people. Leslie is the one who is guiding her on what kind of haircut to get for her birthday, what kind of job to look for. And Roberta is channeling her own energy into another person, and she sees this desperately seeking Susan message. This is an ongoing series of messages between Jim and Susan. They track each other across the U.S., and Jim has set a date to meet up with Susan next. Well, the beauty shop is obviously a very significant setting to start out with, because it is all about the maintenance of a very specific ideal that is geared specifically towards pleasing other people. It has to do very much with how the external is perceived, specifically by her husband in this case, versus the content of her character. And at this point, she is blithely going along with that. Yes. She's sort of a blank canvas, I would say. I would say less than that, even. Yeah. I don't get the sense of a blank canvas as much as I get the sense of a doormat. I get the sense a void. of... A void. Yeah. A milk toast. Yeah. Not waiting to be written upon, but resigned to accept whatever is done to her. 
So whereas Roberta's world at this point is pink pastels, we then meet Susan, played by Madonna. This echoes the first moments that I ever knew Madonna, and I think of Lace. Mm. Her look at that time, to me, was iconic from the very first moment. And that was then interpreted through the lens of the eight-year-olds in my neighborhood who were suddenly wearing lacy bows in their hair and lacy gloves Mm -hmm. and lacy shirts and lacy tights and lacy everything, and they were eight years old. Yeah, I wanted to get into that a little bit about how... Bizarre. (laughs) Yes, who this stuff is aimed at. And not just in Madonna's case, but, you know, take Michael Jackson as well. Who, aside from 10-year-old kids and Michael Jackson, thinks, I know, a rhinestone bejeweled glove, but just one. Just one. That is going to look awesome. Yes. Uh, it's clearly right. It's clearly for children. It had to have been. And reading about how stymied studio executives were at first by this movie and how to market it, and then one marketing person saying, I got it. We're doing gloves. We're doing plastic bracelets. We're doing all of this stuff. And, of course, it worked. Mm-hmm. We now know. So the entire wardrobe was shifted to be adapted to Madonna's existing look. Yes. For example, Santo Clasto, the wonderful and amazing costume and set designer worked with Woody Allen for many many years Mm. he went into Madonna's closet and specifically took items out he also designed that great pyramid jacket too well in addition to 10 year olds Susan is clearly Roberta's idea of edgy and artsy a housewife's idea of edgy and artsy which I don't necessarily think has anything to do with truly walking into the Bowery and finding something edgy. It makes me think of I Get Around by the Beach Boys because of the line, my buddies and me are getting real well known. Yeah, the bad guys know us, but they leave us alone. Yeah. The Beach Boys (laughs) did not know a bad guy. And if they did, they would piss their chinos. Well, Dennis, maybe. Okay, Dennis, I'll give you. (laughs) But he wasn't writing that line. No. If Mike Love ran into a genuine bad guy, it's the end of Mike Love. Yeah. And I get the same impression here. It's not truly edgy. Because, sincerely, when you are selling as many records as she has had, when you sell 90 million records, or however many it is now in total, you don't do that by being challenging. You do that by being acceptable to the largest volume of people. I don't know, though. Do you remember at the time what it was like for people to gasp out loud? I did in my circle by the idea of somebody named Madonna, number one. (laughs) Number two, writhing around in a wedding dress, singing like a virgin. Yes, I know. It was a big deal. You are blowing flyover country's mind. Yes, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. You are blowing the mind of a Fort Lee housewife whose idea that that is edgy. To me, this gets enshrined, this introduction of this character, when we meet her at first, and she's taking the Polaroids. It's all about herself. Narcissism on parade. Definitely. Chewing gum in the middle of the day? I didn't even know what that was. She believes her own myth, for sure. But this, to me, gets enshrined in that hallowed hall of behaviors that I think are only perpetrated upon white girls because they've seen them in the movie. Very top of that list, and we've had this discussion before, four friends 
riding along with their hands through the sunroof of the Jeep, singing whatever's on the radio. Did not happen in real life until the movies taught white girls, this is what you're supposed to do. Yes. The thing specifically about this is she is supposed to be emanating this bullshit charm. This sort of invading your space has no sense of propriety. Let me tell you, if you walk up to someone and write your phone number on a part of their body or you stick a thing in their pocket instead of just handing it to them, you're not being a coquette. You are being a pain in the ass. In Madonna's words in talking about the character, she said she's a con artist who is conning people who don't know they've been conned, which I don't agree with wholly. <laughs> right. Though some people are clearly charmed by it. I would say, though, there are male analogs to it, and they are just as irritating. Oh, yeah, exactly. No, I'm not saying this is a gender thing. This is a non-gender-specific bullshit energy equals charm thing. Absolutely. At this point in my life, I do not want someone sleeping on my couch and making long-distance phone calls. No. Get out. And we're in the worst place for it. Again, this is the music thing coming out of me, but... Among Texas songwriters, there is a strain of them, male and female, that because they think they've slept on people's couches for 10 years and don't pay bills, that makes them a gypsy. You can get out of my face with that. Yeah, you're, you're giving gypsies a bad name at that point. <laughs> I know some Hungarians that would like to talk to you. Yes. I will still say... I bought it the second I saw her on screen, and I'm still buying it sure. today. As a 10-year-old, super cool. Super cool. Everything she had and everything she wore and every single item, which I'll mention some of them, I thought were the most exotic and beautiful and interesting things I had ever seen, which for me is now all about the amazing job of a costume and a set designer for creating a character. Mm -hmm. I also want to say, Madonna, you're gorgeous. I love you. I'm your biggest (laughs) fan ever. Back to the specific scene, she's completing that idea of this drifter. She is taking things from the room. There is a naked man in the bed who doesn't speak, which I think also fulfills Roberta's idea of what edgy is. Mm. She's not trying to please him. She takes money from his wallet. She finds wrapped in cloth a pair of really interesting ornate earrings, which she takes as well, and puts them into her hat box, which I had never seen a person carry around outside of a movie from the 1950s that just had a hat in it. This is her sort of suitcase. I counter that. Okay. That's a drum case. Oh, okay. I always thought it was a hat box, duh. Looks to me like it's a piece of drum. Okay, I'm going to defer to you on that one. Yeah, it looks like it's a a case for a drum, which she has obviously lifted from a musician boyfriend. Yes. I think some teenage girls had then no access to boxes like that and took hat boxes, and it became a hat box later on in the 90s, I would say. Now, as she is hightailing it out of the room before he wakes up, she passes a blonde man... With his head down. This is Will Patton. He's going to be our bad guy. She passes him in the hallway. As she's leaving, he's going towards the room. And how do we know he's the bad guy? Because it's the mid-80s and he has platinum blonde bleached hair. Definitely. He's wearing super cool shirts and ties, though. (laughs) Did you notice that? Everybody. Everybody looks so good in this. Anyway. I wouldn't say everybody. 
Oh, Let, why, why you save it? Why, why you save we'll talk about Aiden Quinn and those ignorant save, suspenders. Save, save that till later. Do you want to recreate how I uh, described <laughs> Aiden Quinn for you in this movie? I think I said something like, and he wears suspenders. <laughs> and I think you vomited into my face. Maybe. As if that was some sort of point of pride. Yeah, that's how you know he's cool. I'll get to the points on how you know he's cool in a little bit. <laughs> I have one I point have bullet points. that discounts. The whole thing. It's that hat. <laughs> when they're at the diner counter and he's got that stupid hat on, it undoes whatever argument that you're going to make uh, later. Richard Edson has the same hat on. And Richard practically... Edson, my, my dear friend Richard Edson, can wear the hat. <laughs> okay. Because Richard Edson is a genius and could pull off any look. All right. Aiden Quinn, I think, looks good. Anyway, why don't you just save it? You just settled down there for a second. We've got some mad. other stuff I've to got, get through. I've got to go outside. Okay. I need to take a walk. Well, listen to Carly Simon in the next scene. Does that help bring no, it me soothe you down? That's not. the juxtaposition. I'm going to keep talking about music every okay. time it comes up. We're back at Roberta's. It's her birthday party. She's the one who's serving everybody in her pink, shapeless shift dress. Carly Simon's playing. We meet Stephen Wright. I was so glad to see him. <laughs> and the party takes a break to watch her husband Gary's commercial for Gary's Oasis. His hot tub emporium. Everyone's a narcissist. And that next moment where Roberta is watching herself in the sliding glass door, to me that's as close as you can get to a suburban mirror. Mm -hmm. She looks out and sees New York in the distance. Well, here's where I made the note that this is part of a very specific continuum. As long as there has been a New York, I assume there has been something be it literature, be it film, be it music, that has inspired Midwestern girls and suburban girls to chase their big city dreams only to get the shit metaphorically kicked out of them for two years to then turn around and run home with their tail between their legs. No this... offense to any of our listeners <laughs> whom that may have happened to. This movie is that in a nutshell to me. It's the first thing I thought when I saw her looking longingly across the bridge to the city that equals more. A more that she is woefully underprepared to deal with. I think again about the age, Rosanna Arquette being 26, I think playing a character of that similar age. She's been married to Gary for four years at this point, we find out. So she got married when she was 22. It's an underdeveloped person. That's where the other part of the target age of the demographic comes into play for me. I feel like it's perfect for the age, either emotional or otherwise, that the film was aimed at. 15 or so at the most was kind of where this was aiming for. Because by the time you're the age of the characters in the film, I feel like you should have learned all of these things a long time ago. But that's not the case, apparently. Based on the fact that... Like I said, this film is not just the only thing to inspire that. It's part of a continuum. And if you wanted to stop those girls from chasing their big city dreams and then getting demolished, you'd stand a better chance standing on the beach and trying to stop the tide from coming in. Because I was just about to say, does the year in which it was made make any difference? Because again, we're putting everything in context. So you have a 26-year-old woman in 1985 who was born in the late 50s. So it is a different time, but Sex and the City does the same thing. 
Girls does the same thing for girls of that age, don't mm. you think? It still continues to inspire when it comes out. Yeah, without a doubt. We now come to a scene that is the one that I have always remembered the most and was one of the most indelible for me. This is when Susan arrives in New York through the Port Authority. She is in the terminal bathroom basically cleaning herself, mm. which, again, this was something I had never seen before. I didn't know that you could use those dryers to clean your pits. <laughs> I've used it many times since then. Thanks, Madonna. We see that cool pyramid jacket. She's in sunglasses and it's at night. Ooh, exciting. <laughs> and we've got the costume. So in this case, it was the bra under the mesh shirt, which was a big deal. Sure. With that hat, with the jacket, with everything, it's sexy Zorro. <laughs> And she's smoking, too, which was kind of a big deal. Well, I guess maybe more of a big deal now than then. I saw it a lot more then at that point. So she's cleaned off that Atlantic City stank off of her, getting ready to go back into New York. We come back to Roberta at this point. This is a little bit more of a scene from a marriage for her. It's the scene that we reenacted, me so wonderfully. <laughs> Gary, what are the clouds made of? Anyway... She's still sighing over this romantic promise of what these ads are. Gary is oblivious. He's in another world. There's no connection when I would assume there would be with young people, but this is subverting that. She has an unfulfilling marriage is what we learn. You're right. It is odd now that you mention it that they are so young to have arrived at this point in their lives already. Because I was thinking specifically that... It's just one of the ways that I don't necessarily connect with the film, regardless of genre, regardless of gender. This whole faded dreams and escape from dissatisfaction thing, I just don't relate. I've never painted myself into that corner, and so I do not know what it is like to be 26 years old in this case, and already basically entombed. Can you think back to childhood and specific examples in your neighborhood town of seeing people already entombed like that i certainly can in retrospect yes but at the time i didn't think so anyway on that downbeat moment we'll transition again this is the susan continues to get a free ride section where she goes to the magic club there's a homeless guy sleeping outside this is again another one of those things that was brand new for me magic club is a big nod to celine and julie go boating by the way, just in case for the cinephiles out there that want to follow the more obscure threads of what inspired this, that in addition to the questions of shared identity are the two things that those films have most in common. Inside the club, we first see Anne Magnuson is the cigarette girl. <laughs> Could you think back to any other people? I was the only one who did, who knew who Anne Magnuson was at that time, who was aware of that within your own circle. We would have been the only two people, probably. Probably. I mean, when I think about 1985, I was the only kid in my high school that knew who R.E.M. was, much less something more obscure like Ann Magnuson or Richard Hell or any of the other faces that pop up in this thing. Richard Hell was the boyfriend that she left behind in the hotel room, by the way. We'll see him again in a little bit. But it was exciting to me as a young person to start to be aware of those people that I thought of as being in this particular place and being so exotic. Susan's carrying her box and also her more low-slung 
boombox, which is the thing that I was referring to that I had back in the Do the Right Thing episode that we did last. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the great big one. I had a bigger, longer version, but then when that slim down came, I had one of those, the one that you could just carry in the crook of your arm. Our next sighting is John Turturro. He is the MC. Mm -hmm. This thing is full. We said that already? It's full. full of New York slash downtown people. So Susan goes back to meet up with her friend who is the magician's assistant. And she's talking about how she doesn't quite have a place yet. Here's number 450 of the items of things that I didn't know you could do. I didn't know you could live without an address. I didn't know that was a thing. I want to say again, I was nine. Yeah, we all have to be introduced to these concepts at some point. You can't just pick them up on the playground. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know any drifters at that age. Well, usually it's going to be cousins, uncles, that sort of thing. You know, now that you say it, I'm sure I did have some of those. I just wasn't allowed to talk to them, probably <laughs> at the family reunions, or they were in jail. So at this point, the basic narrative story, the plot, is coming into play. Susan discovers that this guy that she left behind is now dead. Richard Edson pops up. He's the one who lets her take a newspaper out for free. The dead guy was involved in some sort of a robbery, so something else is going on here. But back to the romantic arc of the story. It's time for Jim and Susan to make their appointed date at the battery. Roberta has come into town, parked her convertible with her husband's vanity plate, She's looking around, she spots them, she sees the skinny guy with the cool haircut and the skinny tie. This is item number one, along with Aiden Quinn later, that directly informed what I assumed my boyfriends would look like <laughs> and did for a long period of time, present company excluded. So before me, it was all backing members of Elvis Costello's attractions? It was thin lads, <laughs> thin waifs with the consumption. <laughs> <laughs> she sees Jim and Susan meet and kiss and get super sexy on the railing, which I was very much into. Jim is a musician. He's headed out with his band to a gig in Buffalo. This part for me was so charming, and I still smile as I watch it as she's kissing him through the van door and running alongside with him. I think Madonna is wonderful. I'm sorry. I feel starry-eyed just even talking about how much... I love her and how charming I find her. Roberta is still on Susan's tail. We now have Giancarlo Esposito selling some wares on the street. There's a moment where Roberta is starting to more slowly, fully inhabit this other persona of Susan as she buys a jacket that Susan has just bartered for some cool boots. This is another one of those things that is hard for me to find my way into this particular scene. The power that people give to the external, that they ascribe to an object to make them feel better about themselves. The difference that a jacket can make. I guess the obstacle between me and understanding is the whole idea of wanting to be someone else so badly. I used to work with a kid a few years ago that routinely, three times a week, when talking about film, would say something to the effect of, Oh, I wish I was that character. You hear that once or twice and it doesn't add up to much. But when you hear it every other day, week after week, for years at a time, you begin to realize that this is 
really sad that this is couching his whole thing in I want to be someone other than me. I want so badly to be cool, and I think I am not. What is it about a jacket that can make such a huge difference? I don't begin to know how to answer that. I think I have certainly had moments like that. Probably learned from the movies that somehow getting this thing or seeing this person or doing this thing was going to make me feel a certain way, which was different and better. (laughs) That doesn't happen to me now, particularly. (laughs) But I think about what this film made me feel as a young person and for many years after that. And the most perceptive thing anyone has ever said to me was that, and this was when I was in my early 20s, that I wanted to be in this film. Someone pointed out that you, Erica, wanted to be in Desperately Seeking Susan. Yes, and they were right. So how can I be that sad person, but then not quite that sad? That every moment of my life I want to be someone else? I don't feel that way. But I can relate to finding an idea of something because they've done it really well, so enthralling, that I wanted to be transported into a different adventure. It's not completely foreign to me, the idea of seeing something admirable in someone else. I certainly have heroes. I certainly have people that I've looked up to and thought, hmm, I admire the way they do that. I can adapt that to me, but never, oh, I wish I was that person. It's the difference between I can achieve that interesting thing that they've also done because I have something within me Mm. versus I've got to be somebody else in order to accomplish this thing. It makes me think about this idea of identity that is explored throughout the film. Right. Roberta clearly has to become someone else, quite literally, to achieve what the change that she needs to achieve. And that idea of aspirational in all its different forms versus self-discovered identity, Hmm. where those lines blur, where they meet, how different those things are. I I don't think I'm answering your question, really, but more things to talk about. It may be an age thing again. At what point did you cross the threshold of, I want to be something else, to, I can make myself into something else? And when is it the thing that you're making yourself into... A completely different person from who you genuinely are or you're just finally letting those traits evolve and show themselves this next scene I think is pretty interesting for that in a couple of different ways this is when Roberta's back home and this is the full automation and the automaton it's the meat roasting itself mm. automatically it's following along to Julia Child to cook this dinner which her husband is not going to eat He commenting on, why would anyone get a used jacket? Are we poor? (laughs) He has no concept of vintage. That for me is always really funny, that line. Again, though, this is something that you learn at what age or when you do what? When you go to the city and experience this, do you have to have a specific mindset? It's so hard for me to backtrack and think about when I might not have known how that worked. When I might not have known that older things are better in a lot of cases. That, just in my experience, for example, where to find particular record stores. How to chase these things down. How to buy something other than what the television and the radio sold you. 
How do you first learn that? I do feel like this is still firmly rooted in the 80s and showcasing that acquisitional nature of what life was. Sure. Well, I mean, it still is. Yeah. But there's a big thing in that whole was still is thing that I was just thinking about right here because you're talking about earlier the character that's 26, 27 in this movie was born essentially at the end of the Eisenhower era. Yes. So you're dealing specifically with this idea of women's roles as they were traditionally developed in that time period and how they have moved down through the 80s and they are still lingering, still lingering, essentially asking the question, are women quote-unquote people too? And how much of that still happens? And now it is 30 years later. That makes me think of something I just noticed today when I was looking for other recommendations that we do Mm -hmm. at the end of the show. I was on Madonna's IMDb page and... The description that's created for her characterizes her, literally, I quote, hyper ambitious. <laughs> What's the hyper part that suggests overly too ambitious for what to whom Versus as what compared standard? to yeah. whom? It's insane to me that we're now talking about a 50 plus year old woman in those terms. And again, I'm going to go back and think about how revolutionary Madonna was. Where her male counterpart would be called what? A hyphenate at worst? Successful. Yeah, exactly. A triple threat. Ben Vereen. I love Ben Vereen. He's great. It's at this moment that Roberta decides to insert herself into this romantic drama. She creates a new identity. So there's a third person. As a stranger, she's going to place her own ad. Because she has found this locker key in the jacket that Susan has sold. She's placed this ad. Jimmy sees it as well at this club date that he's at. Now we arrive at Aiden Quinn. Do we need to stop the discussion of the film so you can fully explain why you hate Aiden Quinn so much? I don't think I've ever really gotten an explanation. Four words. Legends of the Fall. Oh. Now I'm remembering. I think I blocked it out. Number you, one, you went to see the movie. You've heard it's this rant. It's on you, buddy. You've heard this rant. I know. Ugh. But the character that he played in that, she doesn't want you, dude. She does not want you. It is not up to you. Let it go. Jealousy is the dumbest, weakest of emotions that anyone can have. It's the worst to me. And he forever will be that weak, dumb character to me. There is nothing he will ever be able to do that overcomes that. Does that mean you only started hating him in the 90s? Or you hated him before that? I hadn't seen him before that. That was the first thing I've seen him in. That's what defined him for me. And it will never, ever change. You missed out on a lot of good stuff. What, Benny and June? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, he was really good in Stakeout. With your other favorite, Madeline Stowe. (laughs) Madeline Stowe, Julia Ormond. Did he run the gamut of wet blankets in that time frame? (laughs) One end to the other? All that's missing is what? Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio? According to you, yes. Anyway, here he is in all his glory. He's married to Elizabeth Bracco. Does that make any difference? No, it doesn't. Okay. All right. Period. The end. 
Des is Jimmy's friend. She probably loves someone else. God. Oh, you're so cold-hearted in this episode. Back to the movie. Okay. Des is a projectionist. A shitty Very projectionist. Cool. God, jeez, he can't get a break from you. He's not really good at that job. That's true. That's true. But he gets too involved in watching the movies. You can understand that, right? No. You got a job to do, son. Okay. All right. His other job in this is that he's Jimmy's friend. So Jim calls him, asks him for help to look out for Susan because he's seen this ad from a stranger. So just make sure she's okay. He doesn't have much of a description. He's never met Susan before. So what happens later is kind of understandable. We've got this next meeting set. Roberta is waiting for Susan and she's got the pyramid jacket on. Susan is pulling one of her schemes. She's going to stiff the taxi driver who gets the cops to come after her. So when Susan finally spots Roberta, who has now been intercepted by Will Patton, our bad guy, who's making the creepiest small talk ever, she gets drug away before she can get to Roberta. See what happens when you live like a jerk? It's true. Finally, she gets called on it, actually. (laughs) And it takes Rocket's red glare to do it. There you go. There's a scuffle here. Roberta bangs her head against a pole. And what I learned from the movies is one head bump, you get amnesia. The old mistaken identity, the old knock on the head amnesia. All that we're missing right here is quicksand. Yes, I wish. (laughs) I love that later on, I will re-emphasize this, they do the second head bump means you're back to normal, (laughs) which I had thought was a thing. I really did assume that. Right now, Roberta has amnesia. She doesn't know who she is. She's mistaken for Susan by Des because she's fitting all the physical descriptions. Before we get further into it, here is where I was really thinking about a few things in particular as relates to cinema history. It seems like we have this confluence of genres. You've got the women's picture. You've got the pop star as film sensation thing happening. And now you've got this definite nod to screwball comedy with the amnesia, with the key and the locker and all of the hijinks that are going to take place. And I wanted to ask you specifically if you feel like that this happening now in 1985 with this particular group of filmmakers is specifically a response to that super masculine energy of new Hollywood, of your 70s filmmakers, of your Scorseses and your Coppolas and on and on and on having gone through that, and now you have this group of women making this film, getting an opportunity a decade later, that are specifically calling back to old Hollywood rather than new Hollywood. Does it feel like it is specifically in response to the decade before? I hadn't thought about it, but it has to be because they went through that era Mm -hmm. and were struggling to come up during that era and struggling to get the film made during that period and struggling to get it seen during that period and marketed correctly. And I think it's also interesting to think again about age. When I read more about how the film came to be, there were a lot of influences on people who had the power to say yes from their sons and daughters and teenagers saying, oh, this is a story I want to see. This is interesting. Look at Madonna. She's really cool. Mm -hmm. Whereas they were looking before at Goldie Hawn and Diane Keaton. So a very different idea of what it was to be a woman in that period. I think more young woman in Mm -hmm. that period. 
And I think it's also interesting to think about how we're still kind of bypassing older women's stories in lieu of even younger and younger and younger. I just specifically thought about if they made this in 75, let's say, and you had this same story, but with Julie Christie and Karen Black, and how incredible that would have been. You would you would be thumbs up all over the all place. All the way. Let's set aside dream casting okay. for a second and get back to music for a moment. Here's when we have the repetition of that hip-hop beat again. We've got Run DMC, Sucker mm-hmm. MCs. We hear that a couple of times. This is setting us again in where we are. Des is taking Roberta slash Susan back to his place because she's got nowhere to go. She doesn't still know really what's happening or what has happened to her. He says explicitly, no drama, none of your friends hanging around, no stealing, all that kind of stuff. Because he has been briefed about what Madonna's Susan is all about. He's heard these stories for years of knowing Jim about these stunts that she pulls, and he doesn't want anything to do with that. And you still don't like him. Anyway, whatever. I hope she takes everything. Well... There's nothing left for her to take. That's true, because when they arrive at his place, we realize that first we see a fridge being taken away, and then his girlfriend, Victoria, who split on him the other day, is taking all of his stuff, basically. And she is fully in that go-go 80s outfit of the clothes that go all the way to the ground and sunglasses and a tie. She looks like a Nagel painting come to life. Is what she looks like. Her new boyfriend has a Porsche. All of that kind of stuff. Now, she states explicitly to Roberta slash Susan that he's a nice guy and you guys will be really happy together. We still know again he's a cool guy. He's got records. He talks about Charlie Parker. He has a Kung Fu mural. Later, he's got film canisters. He has a cool aquarium. He's got the kitty that we see later. And we also see him petting his kitty in a hammock later. This is a cool guy. This is how we know that. You know how we don't know that? Because he puts on that hat for breakfast the next day. <laughs> and he wears suspenders. But he does have pleat front pants on. But thank God we got away from all that stuff. Anyway. I like to read the suspenders as kind of an aspirational skinhead thing. To me. <laughs> Under all of that, I think his character is an avowed racist. And is trying to secretly <laughs> signal the rest of the world. Oh God. He can't quite go boots and braces, but it's just a little wink. That's the downbeat side of the suspenders in the 80s. Okay, next scene I like to call, Does Roberta Have Orgasms? (laughs) Is that the title card if this was a silent film? I think so, yeah. I'm pretty sure I didn't know what an orgasm was at that point, and I'm pretty sure my mom didn't explain it to me after we saw the movie. At nine? I don't think so. Probably not. don't think so. I knew who Dr. Ruth was. Okay. So you might have heard of the concept. I know what sex was. Sure. But not what orgasms were. And apparently Roberta doesn't either because she's got books on how to achieve them and it's assumed that that's not happening. We are back to Des and Roberta slash Susan. I'll just keep calling her Roberta. That makes enough sense. They're getting closer, trying to put the pieces together of what's happened. And the question is, with this dead guy that we learned about that Susan had left behind... Roberta doesn't know. Maybe she's even the killer. Maybe this has happened. She was a part of it. Maybe she saw what happened. They're starting to get romantically closer. At this point, one of the neighbors plays saxophone in a window, and you jokingly said, is that John Lurie playing the sax? And evidently it It wasn't jokingly. 
that oh, I was his you were... silhouette. Okay. You could tell. You spotted it. Yeah. I could not have spotted his silhouette like that. You did. And it definitely is John Lurie playing yeah. it. Roberta is taking on this persona. She's finding it interesting as she's talking about these possibilities. Maybe I am the murderer. She is the one who takes the initiative and is flirting with Des and actually kisses him pretty boldly. Though she immediately, back to sort of Roberta, starts apologizing for it. So go to sleep, still kind of sensing each other through what I think of as that older movie style, through a divider, mm-hmm. the, the 80s style of a sure. divider. it happened one night, circa 1985. Yes. They go to breakfast. He wears the ill-fated <laughs> hat that you can't stand. We eat that thing. You just throw that in the deep fryer while you're there. <laughs> Marshall Crenshaw playing in the diner. None of the patrons of that diner looked to me like they knew who Marshall Crenshaw was. Probably but not. I'm never going to turn down a chance to listen to Marshall Crenshaw. Roberta, as Susan, actually gets them tossed out of this diner because they recognize Susan from other scams that she's pulled and not paying. So they get literally tossed out on their behinds. We're going to start moving a little bit more quickly through plot stuff because it's just making the connections at this point. Yeah, it's just doing the zany screwball things Yes. to get us toward the point where Roberta is making a decision about her life. Susan is the person who is starting to put these things together, figuring out what's happened. Roberta is missing from her life, and Gary, as her family, is trying to track her down. We hear your favorite, The Fix, here in a little bit. (laughs) I do like throughout this entire second half of the film how much you see Roberta in green. You mentioned the set design and all of the great costuming. Throughout this second half of the movie, when she is experiencing this rebirth, she starts in that green dress when they wake up to go to breakfast. And throughout the finale of the film, she is bathed in green light. So much green light used in the set design. Where for her, it's rebirth. Whereas for Susan, I think it's much more a connotation of money. But it's interesting to see those two things playing against each other with the same device throughout. Susan makes the connection to Gary. And she's going to get to Roberta that way. And she has to be the one on top of it because Roberta is still in a little bit of a fog and still playing at this different life that she's creating. Here's where we have Gary and Susan meet at the dance club. They're listening to Into the Groove, the one Madonna song in the final cut of this film. My top three favorite dance track of all time. What are the other two? We don't need to get into that. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) I gotta know now. You don't do a list with a music person and then not fill out the rest of that list. I'm gonna have to take us back in time for a second. Okay. No, I'm not gonna. Okay. No, I'm not gonna. I'll tell you offline. I'm blushing right now thinking about it no i'll tell you mine (laughs) okay okay how about that then no parking on the dance floor midnight star okay all right uh head like a hole nine inch nails (laughs) (laughs) which i'm not gonna do never mind do you have a whole thing gary oh yeah of course what are you talking about (laughs) of course i have a whole thing worked out okay what's the other one (laughs) probably uh waterloo that's a great one. It's super high That's energy. a pretty wide spectrum of choices within the dance, yeah. within popular dance music at mm. least. Those are my tops. But Into the Groove, maybe number one. It's the one I've danced to the most, both by myself and in clubs. 
I do the Madonna dance because I practiced it many times. <laughs> I will still do it if we were to ever go out dancing. I love this song. Now, do you want to reenact our scene from the other night? <laughs> you mean the scene where I told you <laughs> and you understood for the first time that that song is about sex? I had no idea until two days ago. <laughs> you went 41 years. Never occurred years, to me. 41 years. Well, I mean, you didn't know the song your whole life, but... Right. Uh, 41 slash 9. 31, yeah. at least. Yeah. Not knowing I know the all subtext the words. of that song. I know the changes. You know, I know the extended version. You know you know all the words, so you know the order that the words come yes. in and the things they say. Yes. Okay. Um, but evidently I didn't. I'm discovering all of these new things. Thank you. Sure. I'm glad we do this show. Breaking news into the groove is about sex. Not about dancing. Not about or grooving. Both. both. Yeah, I mean, I think she goes on a journey in the song. Okay. I think it starts with <laughs> dancing, but yeah, it's definitely about sex. Anyway, they're dancing to it. It's awesome. Did you know that Waterloo's about doing it? No, it's not. <laughs> is it? Oh, God, now I've got to... Google it. Wow. I did make, when I do my routine to head like a hole, I do make that about sex. Okay. I'm making my friend Gary really uncomfortable if he's listening to it right now. Because he would not get anywhere near me during that. <laughs> it's a great club. You've got mods and new wavers and goss and punks and dragsters and all kinds of different people. Do you? <laughs> I thought so. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Much like the rest of the film. It's a child's idea, or a Fort Lee suburban housewife's idea, of what those things look like. And in addition to the quicksand, amnesia, knock on the head, mistaken identity thing, you also now have the uptight square yes, with the cool people. you do. I disagree with you slightly, because I think that doesn't give enough credit to Susan Seidelman, and Madonna even, and the club itself. But... What, the danceateria was more of a... That those people seem like they could be really there. It's a small point, though. Sure. Here's the thing. Okay. I know that every time I've seen something like CBGB, even in that terrible movie about it, portrayed on screen, it just doesn't come close. If you're not standing up front against the stage, for instance, watching Who Would It Be These Days, Easy Action, or a band like that, and you are not constantly turning around to make sure you're not getting stabbed, <laughs> if you don't have that feeling, then it is not accurate. Okay. But Danceteria with the four floors and the DJs for 12 hours and all that stuff? Sure, you're right. Danceteria was probably about nothing but fun time, good times. <laughs> okay. Just as illogically planned, we now have the second bump on the head. Mm-hmm. Roberta has gotten a job at the Magic Club as the magician's assistant. Will Patton, the bad guy, is still on her trail. He manages to grab her, knocks her around. She has that second bump on the head, which brings her back to realizing, oh, she's Roberta. Now, while Susan has then inserted herself in the glass household, taking full advantage, Roberta gets back in touch with Dez to help her get out of jail. She's trying to explain, I'm not who you think I am. He gets super turned on when she starts crying, as often happens in the movies, but not in real life. I don't know. 
some people might be into that. Okay. There's a particular scene, for instance, in Legend of Hell House, when Gail Honeycutt turns and looks at the screen and she has been crying, and her eyes are red and her face is just a mask of tears, that she is hot as shit in that movie. Until she shows her terrible dental work. <laughs> Specifically, though, because she is crying. It's the... It's the crying part that's alluring in that scene, it seems like. Okay. It doesn't affect me that way all the time, but in that particular thing, that instance is extremely attractive. And I guess it might be just in general, if you're talking about people that do respond to it, a vulnerability thing that they find very exciting. I think he's responding to her vulnerability and that she's maybe a little damaged. Mm -hmm. And they start doing it on the floor, which I was super (laughs) into. And later when we see his half-side outline, I was super into that. His bony hips sticking out from underneath the sheet. Yes. Yes. Yeah, real sexy. (laughs) Not that I'm body shaming. I am specifically (laughs) Aiden Quinn shaming. Okay. In this next one, we've got Madonna swimming in boxer shorts. And I did not know that was a thing either. It's not. super cool. It's not. I've done it. Now you have. Because I saw it in the movies. That's right. Look, after this, we'll go out, we'll open the sunroof, we'll stick our arms through it and whoop, and we'll sing Life is a Highway, and you can check all this stuff off of your <laughs> bucket list. Life is a Highway. <laughs> <laughs> or I, Waterloo. I do like that scene, though, specifically because you can link it directly to the scene when Roberta, early on in the film, slides into the bathtub and then Susan emerges from the pool. You've got a nice little link there. There are several of those that happen that I mm. really enjoy. This is really important at this point because Roberta is fully confessing that she is a housewife. She is a husband. She is not Susan. He doesn't believe her or know what to make of her. He thinks it's just maybe another con, which at this point he's fully charmed by mm-hmm. and totally into her. But she is saying, this is who I am right. for what that's worth. She still doesn't quite know what that encompasses but she's being honest i think it's worth a lot here because she does not cross that line she does not go to bed with him until it occurs that she has her identity restored she knows who she is and what she's doing and she makes that decision true and now susan has put all of these pieces together she's figured out what uh, the bad guy is after that he was the partner of the dead guy that he killed the dead guy And that they've all got to get together. So another ad is placed. Do you want to say who the newspaper ad guy was? Oh, you mean Ardo Lindsay? Yes. In the newspaper? Yeah, again, just cameo after cameo. If you were a fan of Downtown, of No Wave, I kept expecting to see James Chance pop up. I would not be surprised if every minor character or extra in the thing was someone significant to me in some way. It's fun to watch the credits Mm -hmm. all the way through, which you should anyway. I I shouldn't have to tell adults to watch the credits all the (laughs) way through, but it's specifically fun to watch the cast credits in this. So we're hurtling towards the finale at this point. This is the big meetup. Let's get everybody together at the Magic Club. Right. Again, a very old-fashioned device. It is. And it's a lot of, this person's in this room coming through this doorway, and this person Mm -hmm. doesn't see this, and... In addition to being set inside the device of this magic act using the old saw the woman in half concept, too. Right. She's divided. Which way will she go? 
So we've got Jim and Des figuring out that they're actually talking about two different women. We've got the bad guy at the table next to Gary and family. And Gary and Des are there looking for the same woman, yes. unbeknownst to them. At this point, as Roberta is inside of the box, everybody's going to start coming for her. Will Patton is going to lunge for her, try to get to the earrings. Gary and Des both go toward her. She has to introduce the two of them to each other. Jimmy is tracking Susan. They're separately. They're in another room. And it all wraps up with Will Patton taking Susan hostage, accidentally going into Roberta's dressing room so she can hit him on the head with a bottle. And they save the day. Hope he doesn't get amnesia. Just a second time, he'll be right back. This movie, to me, got infinitely more interesting once she remembered who she is. Once she has gone through that and come out the other side as Roberta again, and the pivotal point of the whole thing is here at the end, when she's facing down Gary, who's telling her, come home with me. And she says, why? Perfectly legitimate question. Yes. And, just like every other time he's been asked something important in this film, he does not have an answer. And she tells him in a really nice little monologue, look at me. Really, actually look at me. Maybe for the first time. Because, for the first time, maybe she feels like she's worthy of being looked at. And not as... The wife object right. for Gary. We learned early on he was having an affair, too. He's living out this, what I think of as a decades-older mm -hmm. idea of, I'm the man and the breadwinner, and I've got this fancy life, and I've got this trophy wife who I pat on the head, literally, and I'm also having an affair at the same time. And we make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Great. What more could you want? Well, she's finally figured out what she wants. It would seem. And it's Des. We see her. <laughs> I get it. I get it, Roberta. We see it her. It could have been anybody else. Why didn't they cast anyone else? They were going to cast Bruce Willis. That I would have been throwing up on the floor. That right would have now. been so much better. You were going to have a fight. <laughs> I'm going to punch you in the face. Have you never seen Moonlighting? I have. And actually, the story goes, he thanked Susan Seidelman for not giving him this part because that's when he got cast in Moonlighting. Hmm. I would I, have rather seen Eddie Deason. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you are a horse's ass. <laughs> No, and I also was not into that, I'm losing my hair, but I'm going to pretend like I'm not, and also wear hats to cover it, mm. and drink Seagram's Golden Wine Coolers and sing a song about it. I wasn't particularly into it then either. Speaking of pleat front pants with suspenders. We're watching Pete Hudson Hawk Hutt. tonight. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Bruce Willis. <laughs> We're friends. You know, it comes from a place of love. But she picks Des... Climbs the stairs to the booth, start making out against the projector, fulfilling your concept phase while he melts it out. Jimmy and Susan are in the audience eating popcorn. I thought it was a great ending. I love that scene. I love that last image. And we get into the groove again. Literally. <laughs> yeah, one more parting shot of antiquated device before we go. Cover of the newspaper, freeze frame. Yeah. 
what a pair. Explaining that it's a happy ending. I want to come back to something that we had talked about before and ask another question. I had mentioned somebody saying you wanted to be in this movie. Mm-hmm. There's a fun and brief oral history of Desperately Seeking Susan that Yahoo did. It was a writer who was there on the set at the time and then coming back to it 30 years later. I'm going to read you something from Matthew Rettenmund, who is the author of Encyclopedia Madonica. Okay. (laughs) Talking about New York and the New York of this movie. I saw the city as a fantasy getaway where people could be themselves. Now the only way to catch a glimpse of the downtown scene is to watch the movie. I'm still glad I moved here, but man, I wish I'd moved there instead. I'm thinking again about that idea of sort of that aspirational identity and that desire to be in this world that you realize later was created for mm-hmm. you, probably, yeah. for people like you. Sure. And I mentioned that this movie, along with a couple of others, but really this predominantly shaped my idea of what I thought of as New York. Did you have any similar experiences with movies like that? Or was it music that shaped more of a world that you wanted to be a part of? Far and away, it was music at that point. Specifically, if I just had to pick one, starting in 1980, Washington, D.C., hardcore scene. If I could have grown up around Discord House and going to all those shows and seeing Bad Brains and Minor Threat and the Teen Idols and all of that stuff... And actually being a part of that community, it's the one that I actually feel is closest in reality to the ideal picture I have of it. Because it's still there. It's the one that is still sustaining after almost 40 years. Discord's still putting out records. Ian is still making speeches. They are still putting music in the hands of people at affordable prices and on their own terms and supporting each other decades down the road. And I think, tell me if I'm right or not, the most transparent, the most what we live is what we say Mm -hmm. and we walk the walk and all of that. Exactly. The best things I imagine about them are the things they do every day. So that is where I would have wanted to go. What do you think came first, the chicken or the egg? That idea that you saw taking place, making you want to become a person who adopts those ideals, or you already had those ideals, and that was the formation or the living example of continuing to do that. I don't think I'm phrasing that very I know well. what you mean, though. And I think I had those ideals first, but I saw in this example that you can put yours together with someone else's and make a much bigger, lasting thing. There are a bunch of other scenes that I was really excited about Athens in the early 80s, Minneapolis in the early 80s, but if I just had to pick one that actually fits who I am and I could have given to and gotten back from equally, DC all the way. If you were going to pin me down to a movie, though, I would stick with the same year and just say Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yeah. (laughs) I live in that world all the time. But since we're talking about music, do you feel like this movie gets made without Madonna? Or does it just stay in development hell forever and there's not enough star power or pop icon status to push it over that hump finally? Because if they couldn't get it made with Goldie Hawn or Diane Keaton, what does it take? Well, it was definitely an on-the-cusp movie. When they were making it, she had Lucky Star and Borderline Mm -hmm. out, which were gigantic, I mean, to me. Sure. 
No, they sold a lot of records. But she could still be on the streets and be mistaken for Cindy Lauper, literally. Okay. So she wasn't as big, and she was still more of a teen-recognized sure. star. Right. So again, these old dudes running the studio didn't couldn't care less, didn't yeah. mean anything. And it was before that huge integration that she did with music into the films as well. And being able to really monetize all of that. So, they're making this movie. Then, Like a Virgin comes out. And, of course, the world changes at that point. So, the movie was greenlit for a really small budget before Madonna was the Madonna that we think of her as. So, it gets made. It doesn't go into the stratosphere until Madonna is Madonna. And, again, back to those marketing ideas they were talking about. Struggling with how to present this. And who the audience was. And they finally went with that image that we know of that Herb Ritz did of the two actresses together. And somebody even saying, if you're having two women on the poster, it's going to be a lesbian movie. Mm. Which dogged movies like that still does, still I'm sure. Does. Thelma and Louise, they said that about so on and on. how often do you have to have something prove everything wrong to say, well, maybe we should stop thinking in yeah. this outdated way. But of course that continues on. Ask me your question again, because I got a little bit of off track. Does it get made if it's not meant to be Madonna's breakout role? I just truly don't think they envisioned it that way. Okay. I really don't. So yes, it gets made either way. It does. And initially, it gets made as a smaller, almost indie film than a big studio film. Yes. And it's just complete luck of the draw that she then catapulted it Rather than the other way around. Rather than the film making her famous, she made the film famous. Yes. Because we talked about Anne Magnuson, for example. Mm. We, it would have been, I think, another example of somebody who is really well-known in a specific niche market and appeals to a certain person. And that's sort of the life cycle of that career. Okay. And it stays there. And we have those interesting artists, but we don't really know them outside of that specific thing that much. So... Instead, we get Desperately Seeking Bernadette Peters. Yeah, or Tama Janowitz. I was waiting for a way to work her in. <laughs> well, how do you feel about your choice for this episode now that we have watched it again after all this time and gone through all this and showing it to me for the first time and hearing what I have to say about it? Does that change anything about your perception of it? To me, it's actually grown in my estimation <laughs> Taking this opportunity to look more closely at it makes me, as always, think about those elements that I didn't really notice the first time that are so much more interesting now, specifically costume and set design, okay. and how that shaped my idea of characters that I couldn't have really articulated when I was nine mm-hmm. and are fun for me to look at now. I will never turn down the chance to watch a Screwball comedy either, really. They are often fun for me, and I don't want to keep this in the realm of nostalgia Mm -hmm. i don't want to say i like it because i liked it then i liked it then and i still like it now you think it succeeds as a screwball comedy i laugh okay does that answer that yeah it's got the two bump amnesia um (laughs) maybe not i i i do though after having said that about not rooting things in nostalgia i still find myself smiling when she is smiling and Finding the romantic things fun. Hmm. So maybe I'm just consistently immature. Or maybe they're universal. Because 
not having seen it before, the parts of it that I did respond to were very much rooted in feeling for Roberta and watching those things like you talk about, watching the changes in her face and seeing her stand up on her feet and declare herself, rooting for her in a sense. And even if I wasn't a big fan of all of the rest of it, there's still something in her humanity that I think transcends whatever faults I might find with it. And I think there's something to be said for watching a really fascinating time capsule of a period uh-huh. you will never see again. You know I like that. And that was inhabited by fascinating people who did great things. And I want to, though, say I, I want to give credit to Susan Seidelman. This was her vision. This is what she made happen. She wasn't just some hack that walked in and it just miraculously came together yeah. based on people's charisma. That was not the case. She had a strong vision and brought it to bear. Thinking back to you watching it for the first time, before we started watching it, you were questioning if you were going to end up being disappointed by it, specifically because of... of... Aiden Quinn. No. Jeez. <laughs> of that idea of a character going back to the way they were oh, before right. Right. Exactly. this change happened. And I said, yeah. I don't think you, if you're going to be disappointed, I don't think it's going to be because of that. Because I knew you knew it ended. Sure. I did anticipate there was the possibility, at least, that similar to the conservatism of the horror genre, once you go through this transformative thing, everything being put back to normal is what you want in the end. When it's definitely not what you want for this character. But I was afraid... That might be what happened. Yes, and it's not. I also chose it because I was in that mode, like with Do the Right Thing, where I was thinking about these formative films for me, mm-hmm. these ideas that set up other ideas. Okay. And though I haven't seen this a number of times, I don't. it's not one of those that I revisit regularly, it was still so imprinted in my brain, I could have told you without watching it again, and the last time I saw it before this was probably 15 years ago, I could have gone scene by scene for you. I could have described what people were wearing, specific elements of dialogue, music. This made a huge impression on me, and I'm really glad that I decided to bring it in because I knew that it may not stand up for me, and it may not have really been a good choice for you. But I think about the tagline for our show, which is cinematic memories. Mm -hmm. And this was a huge memory for me. And I'm glad that actually watching it again makes me appreciate it on a whole new level. How about you, after all of this? Take Aiden Quinn out of this, because we'll never hear the end of it. Okay, leave him in. in. You've already got, at best, you're going to get a C out of it. (laughs) Aiden Quinn it. No, I'll tell you where I came down on it. Where I ended up was, I like where Roberta ended up, but I didn't necessarily enjoy how she got there. Partly based on the things that we were talking about before. The motivation of wanting to be someone else. I understand wanting to be more. I don't understand wanting to be someone else to get there. I don't endorse the idea. I enjoy that she was going through a constant process of breaking free. Moving farther and farther and farther outside of her normal bounds. But there are things that are kind of a giveaway that it wasn't as purely motivated as I would have enjoyed. For instance, when she gets the first bump on the head and she does not know who she is, I think it's a telling choice that they make 
that she is trying to reassemble her identity based upon what she thinks are her possessions. Has nothing to do with her instincts, has nothing to do with her feelings. It has to do with the material objects in her possession. Mm -hmm. And that those things are the things that define you. That I'm not so keen on. She overcomes that eventually, but that is the initial instinct. So there are things about it, like I say, I don't necessarily enjoy the journey, but where she ends up, independent and free and self-directed, I like that she got there. There's one thing I really enjoy within her journey. It's the obvious delight she takes when she becomes the magician's assistant Mm -hmm. in the act. She's having a really good time, (laughs) and I really like that and that idea that she earns her own money with that moment, too. I mentioned that I won't turn down a screwball comedy. Why I like this within the genre is that it's a little bit different because Susan is actually not our lead. And you know me, I cannot stand a character who thinks that they are more charming than Mm. they are and insinuates themselves in someone's life and forces them to fall in love with the person, (laughs) which happens a lot in these kinds of movies. I hate that. I want to kick those people in the teeth. However, man, like I'm dark. I'm I'm telling you, bringing a baby really bothers me. <laughs> it really bothers me. But we'll set that aside. It takes Madonna for me to smile my ass off watching this person that I don't want to really be around as an actual person in real life. That I want to watch them do stuff, and I like that she is not the person we're watching change. Mm-hmm. It's a person I can become more invested in, like you mentioned. Right. And speaking of how great Madonna is to me and how she was able to transform a character that I didn't particularly like, she is the basis for my recommendation. Oh, okay. What do you have for us? I chose Evita from 1996. That, in retrospect, comes as zero Zero surprise. surprise. (laughs) Would you like to listen to the soundtrack? Don't ask anymore. From 1996, it is the musical based on the musical about Ava Perón, who was the wife of Juan Perón, the Argentinian president. She was arguably the most beloved and most hated woman in Argentina during that time. And this tracks the course of her life, which to me works so well in that I think you can track Madonna's life in it as well. In some of the moments, Mm -hmm. I don't mean in the whole thing. Directed by Alan Parker, with Madonna, Jonathan Price, and Antonio Banderas. Would you say this is the definition of a vanity project? If she had created it, maybe, but this was an existing property for a long time before she came into this. And frankly, I think she is the perfect person outside hmm. of Patti LuPone okay. to play this part. So no, screw you, it's not a vanity project. <laughs> not that that's bad. I mean, Purple Rain is a huge vanity project and you cannot quibble with that. And also, Antonio Banderas is wonderful. He's a fantastic musical performer. Hmm. And I think if you're a fan of the Amodovar movies, you can see where he could have that strength. Mm-hmm. And how about your recommendation? Well, we'll just keep the Madonna train rolling. Sounds good to me. Who's that girl? Shanghai surprise. No. No. My favorite Madonna role is in Dangerous Game from 1993, directed by Abel Ferrara. I love this one. She's excellent in it. It stars Madonna, obviously, along with Harvey Keitel, 
and James Russo, and it's a thinly veiled autobiographical slice of Abel Ferrara's life in which a dictator is making... I don't know. <laughs> I'm thinking of Vita. <laughs> in which a director is making a film within a film about religion and the search for greater truth and destructive appetites, all of which are inescapable in Ferrara's movies. In typical Ferrara style, it gets very ugly, but it's terribly effective, and it's a long, hard look at a certain type of filmmaking that I really enjoy. She's great in it. She is. I think it's really deeply felt. I can still remember moments from it, and I haven't seen it since I saw it then. Mm. Well... Ferrara is one to push you to your limits. So if anyone that she's worked with so far is going to test what she is made of, it would have been him. And I think she acquits herself very nicely. Two Madonna great recommendations. That's Evita and Dangerous Game. And that brings us to the end of episode 42. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for our name in either one of those places. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to say thanks to a few people for sharing the show or giving us feedback this time around. First and foremost, before I mention anything else, I want to say a very special thank you to Constance Scharf for donating to the podcast. She donated in honor of her brother, Mike Scharf, who is also a friend of ours and a big supporter of the show. He and his wife, Heather, have been very helpful lately in spreading the word about the podcast, and we definitely appreciate everything the entire Sharp family does for us all the time. In addition to the Sharps, I wanted to say thanks to Jesse Dampolo, Travis Trudell, who sent us a really nice email this week, Eric Parkinson over at the podcast This Must Be The Place, Jeff Duncanson, the fine gentleman at FUDS on Film, Tim Lego. Doug McCambridge over at Good Times Great Movies, who coincidentally has done shows about the films we've covered in our last two episodes. So if you want to hear another take on Do the Right Thing or Desperately Seeking Susan, go check out Doug's podcast. Doug, I swear we were not trying to copy you. (laughs) And Jane Sankner, who is really upset that her birthday is going to be the day that you are hosting a Murder, She Wrote evening with Austin Film Society. And she will not be able to make it. She wants to know when you are bringing that show on the road. You heard that right, folks. If you're in the Austin area, March 20th, I will be programming two fantastic Murder, She Wrote episodes for Austin Film Society. It would be great for you to come join us. And I should just try to work on our our rolling projection unit of Murder, She Wrote, right? And just get this going throughout the United States. We'll start in Cabot's Cove. And make our uh, way that's down. Cabot Cove. <laughs> Sorry. I'm Can just... you? Oh my gosh. We are going to get in a fight. Jane, sorry. Do you want me to do that again? No. I want this to be on the record, pal. <laughs> Cabot Cove. The hell? We are on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio. Did I pronounce all those right? I think so. <laughs> If you would like to rate or review the show via any of those services, it helps get the show in front of more people, and we certainly appreciate that. And if you would like to find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, or you would like to help out and take advantage of that donate button, you can find all of that at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. 
and thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.